I first met Kevin, actually we first met Kevin in 1989 when he started to come to the Rams Bible study. In fact, this wall wasn't here and we met over in that corner. Um, and uh, since that day we've become good friends, we have been and will continue to be. And uh, since the days he left the Rams, he went on to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He went to a couple of Pro Bowls and then got to go to the big dance this last year, which is uh, euphemism for the Super Bowl, so he got to enjoy that. And uh, I just want to take a moment just to introduce him, but more importantly, the celebrity of their family is who I'm, I'm really setting up this introduction for. And this is, uh, this is kind of like God's version of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say which one was which now. <clears throat> but anyway, if some of you remember, uh, we met Tara in 1992 when uh, Tara and Kevin uh, got married and I had the privilege of officiating at their wedding. And uh, Tara has been here before and she's sung for us and uh, she's uh, volunteered to do the same this morning. So anyway, uh, Kevin and Tara, it's good to have you back. And Tara, uh, if you want to come on up and share with us, that'd be great. Good morning. Nice southern slang for y'all to hear this morning. Nice twang to it. I uh, just want to thank you for inviting me and having me back this morning. You know, um, as I was preparing my song and trying to think about, uh, you know, what I wanted to sing and, and which song I was going to choose, um, I decided to sing a song called In Majesty He Will Come. And I sort of started thinking about in my mind, you know, In Majesty He Will Come. And I started thinking about, you know, especially those of you that are married, you're going to really identify with this, especially you uh, women. <laughs> you know, your husband comes home and goes, oh, yeah, honey, I invited so-and-so over. Well, you know, you're like, oh, no. So you're scrambling around the house. You're running to get everything ready, clean up the house, does this, pick up the toys, do this, do that, you know, and you could just strangle him for putting you in that position. But, you know, then he, maybe he comes home and says, oh, honey, you know, I invited mom and dad over. You're like, oh, okay, no problem. You don't care what it, their house looks like when your family comes over, you know, it's okay. You'll let them see the dirt, you know. It's just when he brings home, like, his boss or something that you're totally in a state of panic. And I started thinking, you know, in our lives, in majesty, he will come. The Savior, the King of the world, hey, he's coming to meet us. And sometimes I think, you know, is my house clean? Am I, am I, is my house really prepared for the King of kings and the Lord of lords to come back whenever he gets ready? You know, it's not going to be Kevin coming home going, honey, I think he's coming. You know, it's going to be a really big surprise, and it's going to be the most glorious day of our lives as Christians. But at the same time, I think each and every day we have to think about keeping our house clean. And I think that's what our Christian life is about. It's keeping our house clean so that when anybody comes over to our house, we don't have to worry about what's in it. Because it's clean, it's there, it's ready, and it's ready for our Savior. It's good enough for the people next door, it's good enough for the people that we don't know, that we meet uh, just in a random chance, but it's also good enough for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah, I will. 
What's that? Well, you're going to as best I can. One thing I appreciate about Kevin and Tara is that, you know, God has blessed them tremendously. And one of the things I talked about, I think, last week or the week before is no matter what gifts God gives you, give it 100% and give it to the glory of God. And there's a couple that's doing it on the football field and uh, with the musical abilities God's given you. So, anyway. Oh, man, I'm worn out now. <laughs> last time we got together, I mentioned that uh, I thought there were several advantages to being uh, what I call a... Um, a civilian or a lay minister when it's a, a non-paid professional. And the primary advantage, I think, is the fact that I get to live in the world, real world with everybody else. And, uh, you know, it's funny how people treat you. If they don't know you're a pastor or they don't think that you do the kind of things that I do, they think that you're one of everybody else. It opens some tremendous doors for conversation and opportunities to be involved intimately in the lives of other people. They don't put up a defense and they don't try to hide and they don't try to pretend to be something that they think that you would want them to be if you were a pastor or whatever. So it really opens some, some doors for opportunities. But on the, <clears throat> although my partner and I uh, own a heating and air conditioning company and, and that's what we do for our primary source of income, and that's always a good thing to mention when it's 97 degrees, so in fact, <laughs> I thought it might be a little too tacky to put a little overhead up here, you know, with like a business card. But hey, you know, if I can weave them in, you weave them in, you know what I mean? But uh, although that's our primary source of income, I do have the advantage also and the privilege of being a licensed minister. So I get the opportunity to be involved intimately in the lives of couples, for example, in the area of officiating at weddings. And there are several couples that are here that I got to experience that and had the privilege of being involved and enjoying uh, officiating at their weddings. I mentioned Kevin and Tara, but there, there, there are others that I've been able to do that. And it's awesome to be able to do that because when, you're, when you officiate, you get to see the behind the scenes of everything that's going on. And, and that could be really interesting. Uh, and boy, we could just do a whole morning on that sometime. But, uh, but the thing that I've learned to really appreciate about it is, is that you know, you, you're standing there when no one else is, you know, you're all sitting back there and usually the bride and the groom and the minister are standing somewhere up toward the front and everyone's kind of separated and, and you get to see the exchanges and the looks and the whispers and, uh, and, and sometimes they pick that up on the video that you forget that they wired you for and uh, you know so they got to kind of go through that but you get to see things that you know most of the people sitting out there don't get to see and one of the things that I've come to appreciate is that I have never now listen to me carefully I have never seen a bride at any wedding that I've been at that wasn't looking pretty fine you know what I'm saying I mean, every wedding I've ever been at, whether I was a guest or officiating at, I mean, we're talking about some women that are just done up right. And they are looking good, man. I mean, they have just cleaned up real nice. <laughs> well, because, no, seriously, because you get to see them, you know, you get to see them backstage, you get to behind the scenes, you get to see them, you know, at the rehearsal night, you get to see them, you know, normally when you meet with them. And, I mean, they clean up fine. And, uh, and it could be really a moment, I mean, radiant, stunning, gorgeous, magnificent. I mean, th those adjectives pale in comparison to what really happened. In fact, just to share something about Kevin and Tara, when, when they did their wedding, it was in Alabama at her home, which is kind of out in the sticks. Is that, a, is that a bad thing to say? Out in the country. It was out in the country. And, and, yeah, I mean, it was way out in the country. <laughs> but it was out in the country. And, uh, and the way they had it set up, it was an outdoor wedding. 
And uh, so after they had all set up and it was kind of a, like, a, like a plantation type effect where the, the lawn came down like this and they had set up a stage down below and the, and the people were all sitting up kind of sloped on the slope and then you know everyone would come down. And after it rained for what, about two and a half hours <laughs> and, uh, and Kevin just standing out there like this in his tuxedo just looking up to heaven, looking at me like, hey, I brought you all the way back here, don't you have any more pull than this? Um, <laughs> You know, and uh, he's just kind of going like this. A wedding finally got to go, right? And it finally happened. So Tara is walking down the aisle that's coming sloping down the lawn. And as she's walking, she's singing Kevin a song. And this big stud, this, <laughs> this big old macho dude is standing right next to me. And he's going, and he's going like this. It's going to be okay, isn't it? It's going to be okay. <laughs> It's going to be okay. And, and, and his lips trembling like this. And, and, and I'm going like this. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I, think it, I think it is. And I was like, oh. And it was awesome. It was awesome. It was tough, but it was a fun day. And I guess the point is, is that, you know what? A bride always looks her finest for her groom. A bride always looks her finest for her groom. Now I want you to picture the same scene for a second. I want you to picture down front stands the groom. He's got that spotless tuxedo. He's looking good, not looking bad himself. Kind of got his hair greased back and he's looking pretty fine himself. Got the attendants standing next to him and they're all looking pretty good, the best they've looked in a long time. <laughs> you know, and they recovered from the bachelor parties. They're all standing there at attention. They're looking pretty good. Everything looks great. Flowers look good. The setting is awesome. And just at that peak moment, the, the organ crescendo hits its peak, and everybody stands. And they'll turn around, and they look behind them. And the door is open, or the bride starts to walk down, and they open the door, and what do they see? They gasp. They go, what? What in the world? There's this bride standing there. And it looks like she's just been in a major fist fight. Her dress is ripped. The sleeves are ripped off. Her lips bleeding, she's got a puffy lip and she's got a black eye, it's all swollen. She's limping down the aisle and everybody's thinking, man, something is terribly wrong here. There's something wrong with this picture. That's the parable that this woman whose name Karen Maines paints as she entitles this scene, A Brawling Bride. And her punchline is this. She says, does does not this handsome groom deserve better than this? And then she says, the clincher, alas, his bride, the church, has been fighting again. Wow. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, the apostle Paul writes of the church and he says these words, for Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy and clean so that he would give her to himself as a glorious church without a single spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, being holy and without a single fault. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. The picture of the bride and the bridegroom. Does not that bridegroom deserve a bride much better than this? But alas, the church has been fighting again. Isn't that sad? For those of you who don't understand, the church is not a building. 
It's not a denomination. The church is collectively a group of people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They've been baptized into the body of believers. They've been entered into a body of believers, the Bible says. <clears throat> it's not a building. It's not denominations. It's a group of people who have been adopted by God. They believe what God says about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And for many as receive him, speaking of Jesus to them, he gives the right, God gives the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The Bible says that we become children of God, that God then becomes our father in Romans 8, and we can cry out, Daddy, you know, when we want to talk to him. It says that then all of us who put our faith and trust in Christ become brothers and sisters in Christ. And collectively, we become a family of God that, that, that makes up or comprises what he calls the church or his bride. And regretfully, this picture that he gave himself this glorious church without a single spot or wrinkle or any other blemish that will be holy and without a single fault. What a great plan. No spots, no wrinkles, no blemishes, all of her glory, radiant, a radiant bride. It's a wonderful picture, but unfortunately there are times in our life where it's not very realistic, is it? I just wonder today, I mean, can you imagine what the wedding pictures would look like if Christ claimed his bride at the church today? Picturing standing next to this battered bride with a swollen lip and a black eye and blood running down her face, a twisted ankle and limping. It's kind of a sad situation, and what's amazing to me, and what's sad about it, I guess, is this. It's one thing to survive a world that's hostile to the things of God. It's another thing to have to survive beating one another up. Like what Thomas Brooks once penned, he wrote these words, For wolves to worry lambs is no wonder, but for lambs to worry one another, this is unnatural and it's monstrous. Unthinkable and unnatural though it may be, the bride has been brawling for centuries. We get along for a little while, we kiss and we make up, and then we go back fighting each other once again. It's like Peanuts. I love the Peanuts cartoon. Lucy says to Snoopy, says, There are times when you really bug me, but I must admit that there are also times when I feel like giving you a big hug. Snoopy replies, That's just the way I am. I'm buggable and I'm huggable. <laughs> I like that. You know, and that's the case here with many of us. You know, you look around and there are some people in this room right now who can be really buggable, but also can be huggable. And I guess the point of the matter is this. As we grow older, you would think that we would be more mature in the way that we handle differences when they occur one with the other. You'd think that we have learned by now that we can disagree and yet do it in an agreeable fashion, realizing there's room for differences of opinion, there's room for different ways of doing certain things, there is room to agree to disagree. And yet we can get pretty nasty and ugly, especially the church collectively, this group of people uh, that have an opinion about so many things and voice it in so many different ways, and not always are they constructive ways, some of them are quite destructive ways. And in fact, it's amazing to me as the world watches us treat the way we treat one another, you have to wonder how they, they have, you have to be thinking, what are they thinking and how can these people call themselves Christians? We're brutal sometimes. And I know some of you are thinking, well, you know what, are you saying we always have to agree? Absolutely not. I like what the 
Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, asked, was asked once and said, do you and Billy always get along? And Ruth Graham said, oh, heavens no, dear. We don't always get along. If we always got along, then one of us wouldn't be needed. I like that. And I, and I am convinced the longer I live, how, how true that that really is, particularly in the areas of marriage. If you look at God always puts together people that are different, the beauties and the beasts of the world. And it's almost every relationship, we're like that. We're different. And we can either accept those differences and learn that they're part of God's plan to help us to become more Christ-like and to mature in our faith and to grow as God wants us to grow and we balance each other out and God uses us to be able to do that. Or we can resist it and fight it and, 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 and scratch and claw and dig in and say, I'm not changing. And that's what happens in the church. God collectively puts a bunch of people together that is so, uh, it's amazing the diversity that we see even in a group such as this. And God puts us all together and says, hey, you are now one, you are in one family. And I am your God and you are my people and you are brothers and sisters in the Lord and you're going to learn to get along whether you want to or not. And I'm going to help you. And I like that. I guess my question is, you know, we don't always have to agree, but you know what, can't we be a little more civil in how we disagree with one another? What makes us so ornery and nasty and nitpicky in our attitudes? I guess, uh, the, 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 why are so many of us, you know, so, so bent on, on picking petty fights and using ugly words and, and, and I guess inflicting nasty wounds? You know, we see this attitude in home, we see it in business, we see it, you know, in athletics. I have a friend that, you know, they're, they're picking an all-star team and how ugly and nasty and all of that gets. And, you know, I guess the, the, the good news is that, you know, even back in the days when life was supposedly simple and everyone's pace was a lot slower than it is today, you know, similar things were taking place. And if you've got your Bibles, open it to James chapter 4 for a second, and we'll use this to introduce what we're going to be discussing but even back in those days, I guess they fought over, you know, who made the, you know, who made the first team chariot squad or whatever. And, uh, you know, and who was going to be picked as first string hunter. But, uh, you know, there were still the same types of problems. And I like the bluntness of this particular passage because God, as he used James to write this, gets right to the point. And so I think the nice thing about it is that even the guys that are out here today, there's only three verses, it's right to the point, and I won't even lose you today. So it's just kind of like, here it is. It says, hey, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You want to know what's causing all the problems? Hey, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I like what he says. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? There's two words that he uses. One describes a big picture. The word conflict or, or quarrel describes kind of a big picture. It has to do with a battle scene. It's a, it's a war term. It means that there's a big battle going on. It's saying, what is the source of this huge battle in your life? It's a war. It's like during the, uh, World War II, there were two huge theaters of war. One was in Europe and one, the other was in the Pacific. And it's saying that there's just two theaters of war that are huge. And what is the source of these big theaters of war? And then he goes on to say, you know what? The second word has to do with within that theater of war are many little local skirmishes that break out. 
So he's saying there's the big picture of this huge war, and then within the war there are many little battles that are taking place within the scope of the big war. And so he's using this term and he's saying, hey, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What's causing this big battle to take place in your life? And he goes on, isn't it simply this? Hey, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? This big battle that's taking place, and within the, little, within the battle, there's these little battles. How many of you, as parents, ever had the situation where your children, as siblings, continually are in a state of disharmony? Anybody raise their hand? All right? They're just going at each other over everything. It doesn't matter what in the world is going on, they're going at it. And the closer that they are in age, the more competitive they can become. You tell one to do something, the first response is, why can't the other do that? And then the other one starts, instead of jumping in and saying, that was a wise choice, parents. <laughs> instead of jumping in and saying, hey, that was a good idea, have him do it, they jump back at each other. It's going after each other. And I, you know, and I think, what? Now, can you, as a parent, does it drive you nuts or what? It drives you crazy. Now, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, now, as much as that drives me nuts, could you imagine for a second God sitting and listening and watching the way his kids treat one another? It would drive me nuts. Quarreling and conflicts. And it happens in, quote, religion. Ireland and England. They've been killing each other for centuries. They're beating each other to death. They're killing each other. Seminaries do it. But they're sophisticated in how they do it. They publish papers. And they do research. All telling you how stupid the other seminary is. And how wrong they are in their position. Churches do it. Denominations do it. People break out of one church to go to another church or to start another church because they don't agree with something or other. And they're squabbling and they're quarreling and their conflicts are going on all the time. I talked to a guy who said a member, a pastor who said members of his board of elders haven't spoken to one another in over a year. Well, isn't that a mature, grown-up way to handle things that are going on? <laughs> You know, and that the, all they do is put out fires all the time. People moaning and groaning, complaining about how things aren't being done the way they think things should be done. And it's an ongoing battle. You know, and it's amazing to me because it's pretty simple. And here's what he says. What's the source of all of this? Is not the source your pleasures? Is not the source your pleasure? It doesn't sound like, you know, that big a deal. Well, what's so big about pleasure? But the English word that we get from this Greek word is hedonism. It means you do whatever you have to do to make sure you get what you want. If you're not getting your way, then man, you know what? You've got to be determined to get it. And if it means enlisting people for your cause, you sign them up. If it means arguing with somebody, then you argue with them. If it means threatening them, you threaten them. If it means stomping your feet on the ground and pounding your fist on a table, then you do that too. You do whatever you have to do to win so that you can get what you want. And isn't that sad? Because it's exactly the opposite of what Paul has been saying up to this point when he said, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, did not grasp 
equality with God or, or did not want equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself. You know, that whole aspect of humility, of not digging in and wanting just to get our way. He's saying, hey, isn't that really what the source of the problem is? You do whatever you have to do. And, you know, when you look at this and you go, well, aren't there some things worth fighting for? Absolutely. And we'll talk about those in a second. But the reality of it is most of the problems that we have, the quarrels and conflicts with one another, the reason the bride's beating each other up is because we just simply want our way. I want my way and I want it now. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to take it. And if you get in my way, I'm going to punch you out. He says, look, you, you lust and you don't have, so what do you do? You commit murder. You're envious, you can't obtain it, so what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Some of us are always praying, oh God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. He's saying the reason I like giving it to you because the only thing that you want is just for yourself and you're being selfish. Instead of saying, God, give me whatever it is that you will that I have, we're saying, give me what I want when I want it. And if you don't give it to me, then I won't wait for you. I'll go take it myself. And the opposite of that is everything that we've learned up to date. And that's the thing I love about going through a book study because it builds on, it builds on itself. And the opposite is, hey, you know what? You'd be unselfish. You be humble. You put God's will and God's desires, God's needs for us first and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Simple as it is. And we go through this. And you say, well, how do, you, how do we express all of these things? How do we express the disharmony? You know what? Usually it's power plays. It's trying to get people to agree with our position. Sometimes it's pastors of churches who are dogmatic and say it's my way or the highway and anybody that disagrees, we don't even want to hear it. We're going to go ahead and just boot them out and make them feel like they got to leave because they don't fit in. Sometimes it's board of elder or leaders of a church who will get together and say, we're not really open. Oh, yeah, we're here to serve you. We want to listen to you, but we don't really want to hear anything that you have to say if it's different than what we already believe. We're not really open to listen to anything, but we want you to think that we are. We've all been places like that. We've worked for places like that. Hey, I got an open door policy, the boss says. Come in and share with me anything that you want to share whenever you want to share it. And the first time you share something he doesn't want to hear, you're on, a, you're on the out list, man. You're on the to-go mail list. The first time you give him a hard time beyond that, it's going to be, we don't need you here anymore. But hey, we want to encourage you to come and share with us whatever it is that's bothering you. Oh, yeah, you do. You know, we've all been there. We know how that works. And so we play these little games and we manipulate one another. And we need to recognize and understand that, you know what? It's amazing to me, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I don't think he'd put up with it much longer. You ever get to the point as a parent when your kids are driving you nuts, you just draw the line and say, I have had enough. That is enough! And usually, like, you know, you're like ready to... Uh, uh, uh. And they look at you and they go, okay, now we know he's upset. <laughs> We've pushed it, pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. Now when his, that vein bulges in his neck, and when his eyes start bugging out, then we'll back down. You know, and I think that's what God does sometimes. We get to that point, we keep pushing, 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 and then all of a sudden we go, oh, okay. We'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll work this out. Say, so, oh, yeah, we will work it out. Listen to what Marshall Shelley writes in his book. It's called Well-Intentioned Dragons. He talks about disharmony in the church, and this is what he says. He says, dragons, of course, are fictional beasts, and you know what? Right now, I would give anything to be able to do this in the voice of Sean Connery. 
But I just, I can't, I don't even want to try it. Dragons, of course, are fictional beasts, monstrous reptiles with lion's claws, serpent's tail, bat wings, and scaly skin. They exist only in the imagination. But there are dragons of a different sort, decidedly real, and in most cases, though not always, they do not intend to be sinister. In fact, they're usually quite friendly, but their charm belies their power to destroy. It says, within the church, there are often sincere, well-meaning saints, but they leave ulcers, strained relationships, and hard feelings in their wake. They don't consider themselves a difficult people. They don't sit up at nights thinking of ways to be nasty. Often they are pillars of the community. They're talented, strong personalities, deservingly respected. But for some reason, they undermine the ministry of the church. They are not naturally rebellious or pathological. They are loyal church members, convinced they're serving God, but they wind up doing more harm than good. They can drive pastors crazy and even out of their church. Some dragons are openly critical. They are the ones who accuse you of, pick any of the following, of being too spiritual, not spiritual enough, too dominant, too laid back, too narrow, too loose, too structured, too disorganized, or ulterior in your motives. These criticisms are painful because they are largely unanswerable. How can you, after all, defend yourself and maintain a spirit of peace? How can you possibly prove the purity of your motives? Dragons make it hard to disagree without being disagreeable. Sightings of these dragons are all too common. Anyone who's been in the ministry for more than an hour and a half knows the wrath of a dragon. Harry Ironside described it this way, wherever there's lights, there's bugs. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Wherever there's lights, there's bugs. And that's the truth, too. As we go through this, it's interesting if you got your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 4 because all of this leads up to this particular point in our study in the book of Philippians. But in Philippians chapter 4, you know, if this problem of the, the bride beating, beating one another up is just some new phenomenon, but it's, there's nothing new here, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, this, this brawling bride has been going on for centuries. And uh, I guess it's not that disappointing to understand and recognize the fact that in Philippians chapter 4, a similar type of thing is going on at the church at Philippi. And as we look at this, we realize that, hey, you know what? We can learn something from all of this because even, even with this fine group of Jesus people at this particular town, you'll see that, you know, some of them just don't like each other. And in Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 5, we read these words. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see my joy and crown. So stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to men. The Lord is near. You know, one of the things that, that's, that is exciting as I look at this particular passage is that, as we'll see, there's going to be joy. There's going to be joy in diffusing disharmony. There is joy to be found in being a minister of peace and diffusing disharmony in rather difficult circumstances. And we look at this, and in typical fashion, what Paul does is he writes a principle, then he gets to a specific concern, and then he'll give us an application. 
So the outline that we're looking at is there, there's a principle, a general principle that's going to be involved in this. There is a very specific problem that he wishes to address. And there's also application or an action step that he's asking that these people take. So as we go through this, look what the principle is, and that's found in the first, ber first verse. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, here's the principle, so stand firm in the Lord. You see what the principle is? The principle of us learning to get along with one another is understanding what it means to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. In Philippians 1.27, he wrote this, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in one mind. Stand firm in one spirit. What he's doing is saying that there's a general principle here and that all of us who have come to know the Lord put our trust and faith in Him. He's given us His Spirit to live within us and we are to stand firm in that Spirit that He's given us and also the faith that we say that we, that we have, that we believe. Saying stand firm in the Lord. There's a common ground that every person that knows the Lord we can all get back to as a starting point to try to reconcile and revive relationships. We have to understand that, that that's the general principle. All throughout the scriptures, Paul says, stand firm in the faith, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. He says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, keep standing firm. It's continuous, present tense. Keep standing firm. Now that we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord, don't waver across that line. So then, brethren, stand firm. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. What he's saying is, and it was a term that, that we used when we, were, when we were talking about football terminology, but what he's saying that helps me to understand, he's saying this, Chuck, what I want you to do is, I want you to stand firm, and we used to say, I want you to hunker down. And what that means simply is, I want you to draw a line, and this is the picture that I have in my mind, as it's a goal line defense. He's saying, you got this line, and you say, here's the line. And you hunker down, which means you get set up, and there's no way, there's no way that anybody's going to get through you and make you cross that line. There's no argument they're going to give you. There's no forearm shiver to the face that they're going to give you, knock you back across the line. There's nothing they're going to be able to do to force you to go back across that line. He's saying, so stand firm, hunker down, don't let anybody sway you into changing that line. But man, that's interesting. And in different sports, I think about it from a standpoint of a batter in the batter's box. And he's up at the plate. And you ever see a batter kind of dig in? They're digging in, man. They're digging in that back foot because what they're telling the pitcher is, I don't care where you throw the ball, but this is my neighborhood now. This is my home. This is my neighborhood. And you're going to have to come to my neighborhood if we're going to be able to compete. And so what a pitcher will try to do is he'll try to knock that batter back so that he starts to give up on the plate. He wants to back him off so now he can start hitting the outside corner. And it's all a strategy of getting that person to compromise and step back away from what he believes to be his neighborhood, so to speak. And you see it all the time. That's why pitchers knock players down. That's why they pitch them high and tight inside. And that's why you see this conflict going on between a batter and a pitcher. Same thing happens. If you look at a guy digging in on the goal line, you see him digging in his cleats. He's saying, hey, you know what? You are not going to move me. I'm standing firm in this particular area. 
See, what's important to understand is this. You say, well, what's the big deal about it? Well, here's the big deal. I'm convinced of this. Standing firm in the Lord always precedes uh, relating well in a family. And what that means in simple terms is standing firm in the Lord always precedes relating well in a family. And that means this. you got to know what you believe. You have to know what is important. You have to know what is negotiable and non-negotiable. You have to make the difference between understanding that these are non-negotiables. These are, there, there's no way, shape, or form that I'm going to ever allow anyone to tell me that I'm going to give up some of that in order to get along with them better. Non-negotiable. But there are a whole bunch of other things in life that are negotiable, and what I'm finding in the world is that most of the time our fights or quarrels are over negotiable things. Most of the time, the, the squabbles and the quarrels and the conflicts in the church are over negotiable things, not non-negotiable things. And we have to learn the difference because once I understand who I am and what I believe, then there's room for me to negotiate with you if it's in a negotiable area. But if it's in a non-negotiable area, hey man, I'm telling you what, I'm just honkering down, I'm set up on the goal line, I'm digging in at the plate, you're not going to move me back for anything because I know that this is my neighborhood and you're not going to change anything as far as my neighborhood's concerned. But we need to understand the difference there and recognize how important that is. You say, well, what are those non-negotiables? Well, you know what? Throughout our study, we've already learned this. Here's a non-negotiable. Every Christian should understand this. Non-negotiable. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, period. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of doing more good things. It's not a matter of doing anything else but putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He did it all. His sacrifice on the cross was it 100% entirely complete. It is finished, he said on the cross, and he went back to the right hand of God, sitting down. His redemptive work to somehow or another atone for the sins of man is finished and complete if only you would choose to believe that and accept that. That's a non-negotiable. And when somebody comes and says, yeah, but we need to now start adding all this stuff to it, I'm sorry, I've got to draw the line. That's a non-negotiable. We need to know what we believe. It's like the old Apostles' Creed that, you know, so many of us have never even heard, but I want to share it with you. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell on the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day he will come again, as Tara sang, to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Ghost. And I believe, and it says the Holy Catholic Church, and simply means the United Church, a group of people who believe. It's not Roman Catholic Church. It's not a denominational statement. What it is is I believe in the Holy Church, the Holy United Church, one church before God. And the, and the fellowship of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Amen. I mean, that's what, when you say that you believe in Jesus Christ and that you call yourself a Christian, that's what you say you believe. And you need to understand that and recognize that and say, on that, I draw the line. The type of music in the church, hey, let's talk about it. The time of a service, let's talk about it. Whatever, all the other stuff that's going on, we can talk about those things. But there are some things that we do not negotiate. I want to tell you another thing that concerns me, and that is that I got a call one time, and a guy asked me, he's an elder of his church that wanted to duplicate a similar type of ministry to professional athlete in his city, and I won't name who he is, or I won't name the city, but this is what he said to me. He said, you can't tell me 
that you go into a locker room or meet with professional athletes and actually take your Bible with you. And after my stunned silence for a second, and I try to regroup, where the guy was saying basically an, an idiotic statement, you don't use your Bible for Bible study. <laughs> after I caught myself and composed myself, I said, what do you mean? Well, because well, they're not going to want to listen to anything you say from the Bible. And I thought, you know what, isn't that a tragedy? Because God's word is truth. The truth sets people free. God's people are sanctified or separated specifically for that truth. The word of God, when it goes out, does not return empty or void. The word of God and the spirit of God is what God's power is to convict the hearts of non-believers to understand that they're lost before God and that they need a savior. The word of God is what convicts us when we're doing something wrong in our life and that we need to repent from it and to turn from it. The word of God is truth and the only thing that we have is the word of God. And I say, well, of course I use the Bible. What do you think I'm going to do? Go in with my own philosophies and my own theories and my own whatever? And there's a movement that's going through all the churches, and we need to understand something here, and it's a real concern of mine, and that is this. We're, we're trying to set up the church to become more tolerant for people to come to, to be entertained when they need to hear the truth. Amen. We don't need to become an entertainment business. They can go to a movie. They can go to Rotary Club. They can go to other clubs. They can go to seminars. They're all over the world, man. Whatever, the feel-good seminar, sign up and go. But when we bring people to church, there's one thing that I would hope that every time you bring a guest that comes to hear me speak, one thing that you can be convinced of beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that is, is I will open up the Bible and I will teach truth from the Word of God because God's Word is what they need to hear and God's Word is the only thing that we have and the only power that changes the hearts of men. That's it. The rest is nonsense. And you know what I found? Is that people have never been to church and they've never heard anybody teach from the Bible that when they come and they listen, they go like this. That's powerful stuff. That's awesome. That's, I mean, I've never heard that before. I've been going to church, such and such church all my life, never heard this. This is awesome. This is powerful. This is life-changing. This is transforming. That's because it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And it's able to separate bone from marrow. It's able to cut through all the facade in your life and God's able to get right down to where you're at and say listen you this is what you're missing listen you this is what you're doing and I know because I see all and my word penetrates your heart and you got a choice you can continue in your disobedience or you can repent and turn from it but it's your choice and I'll tell you what and it's what I told you a couple weeks ago there's sometimes that we need comforted in our affliction and other times hey we need afflicted in our comfortable level but what he's saying is, if we stand firm in the Word, if you stand firm in the Lord, then guess what? I have never met anybody yet when they're standing firm in the Lord that doesn't get along well with other people. Isn't that true? Usually the people that aren't standing firm in the Lord, that are disobedient to the Word, that are living, quote, in sin or doing what's wrong before God, are the ones causing most of the problems in the body of Christ. And we need to recognize that and we need to understand it. So, you know, let's, let's not lose sight of this. Anyway, let, let's go through it real quick. Here's the problem. 
Okay, the principle is stand firm in the Lord. The problem is, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. I like this. He names names. Oh, let's not name names. Let's not cause any problems here. Hey, these two women were causing problems. Everybody knew about it. It got to the point where even Paul heard about it in the prison, and he didn't hesitate to say it wasn't, well, he said, she said. You know how people do that to you? They come and they say, hey, did you listen? To, did you hear what he said, that she said, that he said, that they said? And I say, hey, listen, you know what? Give me some names. Did you hear what they said about you? Well, you know what? If you want me to deal with it, then tell me who they are. Give me a name. Because I think I got a phone that I can call them, and I'll meet with them. And I'll talk to them. And it's amazing how silly we are sometimes and stupid that we don't just call people. You got a problem? I heard you got a problem with me. I'd love to talk about it. Let's discuss it. And he just names names. The only thing that we know is these two names are feminine names. They're two women are having a problem at this particular time in this particular church. And he's saying, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. Now, this is, this is going to crack you up. I looked up their names. Yodia means a prosperous journey. Syntyche means a pleasant acquaintance. I love that. Here's one on a prosperous journey and the other is a pleasant acquaintance and they can't stand each other and they're causing such a commotion that Paul has to write and call them out in a letter saying, hey, would you two get along? And what I like about it is he says this, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche, meaning this. You know what? <laughs> There's fault on both sides here. I urge you... And I urge you, there's some fault on your side, there's some fault on your side, now work it out and get along. I like that because he doesn't say, here's what you need to do, and here's a four-step program of reconciliation. You know, see, and this is what I like about dealing with Christians. Because sometimes, you know what it comes down to is this. Look what he says. What's his, what's his formula for working out their disagreement? Live in harmony, how? In the Lord. Yet two Christians aren't getting along. You know what? Sometimes you just need to sit down and say, hey, you know what? Can you just live in harmony in the Lord? Knowing that you are brothers and sisters or sisters in Christ, that Jesus died for both of you. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Can't we just go back to that common ground of, hey, you know what? You both found forgiveness in Christ. Can't you use that as the basis of your common point or your common ground and just, would you please just get along? There's no trick here. There's no fancy seminar or formula or 15 pages of this is what you need to do or come back for four weeks and we'll talk about conflict resolution. I mean, sometimes it gets so nonsensical that you just have to go, you know what? Hey, you're a Christian. You're a Christian. Would you just go work it out? Can you just work it out? That's all that he says. That's all that he does. I like that. And you know what else is sad about this? This is the only time these two women are mentioned in all of Scripture. Can you imagine their epitaph? There's a tombstone. What's their tombstone? What do we know about them? If you ask them about a trivia question, Bible trivia question, who were Yodia and uh, Syntyche? They were the two women in Philippians 4 that didn't get along. <laughs> you know, I wonder now, you laugh about it, but I wonder, what, if, what would someone say about you? What would someone say about you? Do you know so-and-so? Yeah, unfortunately. See what I mean? Just a little one sense. They didn't get along. Here's what I'd like to see have happened. At the end of all this, say, you know what? They didn't get along. But you know what? They learned to get along. Their epitaph would be, 
they resolved their differences. I like that. Now, some of you are sitting here, and man, this is opening up all kind of wounds, and you're getting a little excited about it. But you know, notice also what happens here. He says this. He says, oh, sometimes you've got to add a third person to it. He said, true comrade, and there's no name given, so there's no reason to speculate on who this person is. But the point of the matter is this, that he's saying, hey, there's a mediator or an arbitrator who gets involved. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There is no question. See, sometimes we think this. You know, if you don't agree with me, I don't even know whether you're a Christian or not. There's some real concern about your salvation. I don't think, no, I don't think so. He's saying, hey, guess what? They're all in the book of life. They've all trusted in Christ. They're all children of God. Their names are all in the book of life. And you know what? And they still aren't getting along. They need to learn how to do it. And ain't, you're not in, and now I'm in, and you're out because you don't agree with me. The bottom line is that there's a whole bunch of room for believers to disagree with one another, but we need to do it in a way so that the whole world doesn't see how ugly we can get and ripping each other up and beating the bride up as she's walking down the aisle for the groom. So saying, hey, if you step in, then step in. Let me close with this. Here's some practical stuff, all right? Number one, understand this. Please understand how simple and true this is. Guess what? Clashes are going to occur. We are not always going to agree with each other. And in fact, it's healthy that we don't always agree with each other because what I'm finding is sometimes when we don't agree with one another, it's because one person is not really voicing how they truly feel about something. And that's not a very healthy relationship at all. We need to have the freedom to voice our opinion in a constructive way and also know that the person that we're sharing with is also listening to the point where we understand they care to hear what we have to say. Clashes are going to continue to occur. It'd be nice if they didn't, but we live in a depraved world. And guess what? As long as there's depravity in humanity, there's going to be disagreements and differences. Number two, and not all conflicts are wrong. Hey, sometimes there's a reason that churches had to leave, people had to leave and start new churches because the lines that they had drawn all of a sudden became very fuzzy. Where scripture was clear, they were saying, well, let, let's negotiate with the non-negotiables. And sometimes you got to say, hey, you know what? There's no way. These are non-negotiables and sometimes it's a, it's a right thing to stand up and say, I won't be part of that. Number three, if the disagreement could be resolved and it should be resolved and it's not, then usually there's some bonehead in one of the two parties. And selfishness is at the core. And that's where you gotta, you got to urge that person to say, hey, you know what, I urge you to pray about it. I urge you to seek God's will in that matter. I urge you to recognize the fact that maybe you know what, you need to be open and understanding that there's other ways to look at things in life. And you know what? Usually at the core of that, when we don't agree or we can't resolve something, it's because somebody's hunkered down and somebody's drawn a line in an area that really is a negotiable area and they shouldn't have done it. And that's where we have a lot of problems. It should be resolved. Let me share with you. You, you got a minute? Everybody? If you don't, you can go ahead and go, okay? Um, but th th this is important because the, 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 this next point is critical if God uses you to kind of be involved in trying to, to help out in a situation like this. You know what? What you're trying to do is, is, is restore relationships. There's joy in diffusing disharmony. 
You're trying to get people to agree, to come to a commonality where they can agree with one another. It's, it's not discipline because usually there's no sin involved. It's just a difference of agreement or a difference of, of, of opinion. You're looking at grace. You're not trying to force anybody to do anything. You know, Paul didn't say, if you don't get this straightened up, I'm going to come and I'm going to start cleaning house. He didn't say that. He didn't threaten anybody or force anybody to do anything and try to manipulate reconciliation and restoration. He just said, hey, I urge you just to get along. In the grace of God, in the harmony of the Lord, learn to get along. And the last thing is this, you know what? When you look at it, it's Jesus. Not logic, not will, not reason, not tradition, but Jesus. We had, um, true story, we, we, had, uh, we had a situation in, in, uh, in baseball where we had a guy, young guy who was coaching, and he did some things that really upset a lot of the parents, upset people all around the program, and uh, really alienate a lot of people. But myself and a few other people thought that there was something redeemable here, and so he's managing another league that my son and their son are playing on for the summer, and we had a baseball meeting, and one of the parents came up to us and said, I cannot believe that you're allowing your son to continue to play baseball for that man. And I said, why do you, why do you say that? And then went and rattled off this long list of things and reasons why this guy should never coach baseball. And I said, well, you know what? I, I don't agree with you. He's young. It's the first time he's really ever coached. He's made some mistakes. But you know what? He's not the same guy that he was in February that he is now in July. And, and, I, and, and it's that goal of progress, not perfection. He's moving in the right direction. And she said, do you think there's something salvageable there? redeemable there is the word that she used and I said yeah I really do and I'm excited to see what God's doing through our relationship with one another that's moving him in that direction you know and the exciting thing was that he came and he was here last week he said I want to come and I want to hear you speak and what it taught me is you know what people are redeemable when we look for progress and not perfection that there is hope. And the reason I know there's hope is because I look at myself and I look in the mirror and I remember what Christ did in my life 18 years ago where I was hopeless and, uh, and non-redeemable to many people. But God didn't give up on me. And it's sad to think that this woman who was nearing her 50 years of age would pout like a little child and stomp her feet and, 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 and pound her fist and basically an adult version of I'm taking my ball and I'm going home that let's try to get even with this person and let's pay him back for what he did and I thought how sad that is that we live in a world that's like that but she had an excuse because this lady's not a Christian but you and I don't have an excuse because we've tasted redemption we know what it's like to be redeemable we know what it's like to have a God who never gave up on us and so I would hope and encourage each of us to consider the fact that there are people in our lives who are hard to like, man. I mean, they're hard to hug because they're buggable. But they're also redeemable. I like this true story. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist minister in London, England. And he had a pastor friend whose name was Dr. Newman Hall. And Hall wrote a book entitled, Come to Jesus. And another preacher published an article in which he ridiculed Hall who bored patiently for a little while, but when the article gained popularity, Hall sat down and wrote a letter of protest. 
And his answer was full of retaliatory invectives that outdid anything in the, in the article in which the article had attacked him. So before mailing it, Hall took it to Spurgeon for his opinion. Spurgeon read it carefully, handing it back to him, asserted it was excellent and that the writer of the article deserved everything that he had written about him. But Spurgeon said this, but it just lacks one thing, he said to Hall. And after a pause, Spurgeon continued, and he said, underneath your signature, you ought to write the words, author of the book, come to Jesus. The two men looked at each other for a few minutes. Hall took the letter, tore it up, and threw it away. I like that. There's joy in being used by God to diffuse disharmony. You and I, whether you know it or not, are God's bomb squad. You see the movie? There's, a, there's the bomb. It's going to go off. There's tension everywhere. Potential violence is in the air. And here comes the bomb squad. And it's got always a cool guy. Got a little drip of sweat right here, but he's thinking, I'm going to be able to diffuse this. I'm going to be able to do something, and God's going to be able to use me, and I'm going to diffuse this. And just when this thing's ready to blow up, snip. The yellow wire was the right wire. And there is joy in the room. And there's singing and dancing. And there is no more sweat. There's no more potential violence. There's no more animosity. Everybody's happy again. There's joy in the world. Why? Because you and I are a member of God's bomb squad. <laughs> so listen to me now. This week, go ahead out there and diffuse some disharmony. Snip the right wire. And remember, be careful out there. <laughs>